Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dan Abrahams. Dan, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm delighted and honored to to be with you today uh, speaking. So uh, super excited to unpack all things sports psychology and coaching. So uh, yeah, looking forward to it. We are excited to have you. Can you start by just telling us a little bit more about you, uh, hmm. some of the really cool work you've done with the Sports Psych Show, and a little bit about your background? Sure. Well, so my background, I mean, I'm a sports psychologist. Um, I came into that profession by way of being a professional golfer. As I always say in these kind of introductions, half tongue in cheek, but maybe half true. I wasn't the world's most fantastic professional golfer didn't win any money whatsoever, which isn't great when you're trying to make a living at the game. And um, I had uh, average talent, um, ball striking talent, as we'd say in golf, um, but probably where I really fell down from at least optimizing, maximizing my ability was what was going on between my two ears. I rarely visited the fairway. Not because I didn't have a good swing, but because I didn't necessarily know how to pinpoint my focus, how to manage anxiety, how to build confidence, how to gain control of myself out there on the golf course. And so subsequently, I won no money and pretty quickly realized I didn't want to live the rest of my life eating out of a baked bean tin can. Um, I wanted to, to make some money and to pay the bills. So I quickly ran off, uh, ran away from uh, mini tour golf, uh, the European satellite tours onto uh, the PGA, the British PGA um, course to become a uh, qualified PGA golf professional uh, golf coach. And the wonderful thing about coaching golf is you're doing it all the time. It's like a 40, 50 hour a week job. Uh, some would even say 60, 70 hour a week job where you're coaching all the time. So you build these coaching skills and I loved every second of it, but I had, I had always had other than perhaps lacking a slight ability on the mental side of the game. I'd always had a fascination um, picking up books when I was 15, 16 years old uh, around sports psychology, Timothy Galway in a game of golf, Dr. Bob Rotella, golf is not a game of perfect, kind of read that front to back, back to front. So I'd always had an interest. And then when I was coaching golf, I suppose that interest broadened. Um, and so I decided uh, I wanted an extra, uh, an additional intellectual challenge. So I went off to do my degree in psychology. Um, when I completed that, I did a master's degree in sports psychology, came to a bit of a crossroads, and I was either going to go down the road of carrying on as a golf coach, but with the sports psychology qualification advancing my career there, or I was going to 
go and become a sports psychologist, a fully registered and qualified sports psychologist. And so I did the latter, not least because I wanted to experience working in other sports other than golf and probably other domains uh, like the corporate uh, sector and life in general. And so that's what I've done for the past 15, 16, 17 years now. I've had the honour and the privilege of working across sports. Um, I've been lead psychologist for England golf, lead psychologist for England rugby. I've held contracts in Premier League clubs, maybe around half a dozen Premier League teams. I've been blessed to work with some of the best coaches, some of the best uh, players of all sports in the world, with Olympians and so on and so forth. And as you've mentioned already, um, I have uh, a sports psychology podcast called The Sports Psych Show, which is only half decent because uh, not because I'm a particularly good host, but because I have wonderful guests like yourself uh, and like Cody, you've both been on. Um, so that's been a, a pleasure to learn from people. And I'm just trying to demystify and unpack sport psychology. I have a lot of academics on and I'm trying to get across their messages in as simple um, a way as possible without ignoring the nuance and the complexity of sports psychology and of coaching and uh, I suppose the other thing to say there is I'm a sports psychologist who takes a broad definition of sports psychology by that I mean I don't think sports psychology is just the welfare the well-being the mental health piece I think sports psychology underpins uh, the, the tech physical sides of sport. I think it underpins all things coaching, all things skill acquisition. I think it underpins player engagement, player progression through learning and player growth, and also player competitiveness as well. So I'm a bit of a greedy sports psychologist. I think we're involved in anything, in everything in many respects. So, so that's me. I've written some books as well. Um, and last year, a Welsh soccer player, Gareth Bale, um, very kindly said that my, my first book, Soccer Tough, changed his life. Whether that's changed his life for the better or for the worse, he didn't actually specify. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully for the better, but we never know. Um, and so that's me, Alex. So, yeah. Well, beautif beautifully done. And I'm glad to be sitting across from another selfish sports psychologist and, and think of it very similarly to you. I think your, your background is, is very unique, having been a highly competitive player turned coach turned sports psychologist. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how that progression now really shapes your work as a sports psychologist. How do having played and having coached really impact the work you do? It's an interesting question, and, and, and I think it, it helps and can hinder maybe um, in as much as I think sometimes and, and maybe I've shrugged this off now uh, the more experienced I've I've become as a sports psychologist I mean maybe at the beginning my experiences as a player uh, and then to a degree as a coach heavily influenced my lens as a sports psychologist um, and so I'm very conscious that I think those experiences are very valuable and I don't think you should dismiss them yet at the same time we have to be very careful as psychologists to make sure that we're, our work 
isn't only through the prism um, of our playing careers or our coaching careers or or just through our lens of the world. I think you would agree that's really, really important. So, But I, I wouldn't change anything in as much as I actually think for a sports psychologist, it's, and, and, and I'm not saying anything, if you don't have a playing background in your sports cycle, you don't have a coaching background, if you've been, if you're a sports psych now, I'm not saying you can't be an awesome sports psych, you absolutely can, and there's many of those around. Um, but I do think it's to one's advantage if you played a sport to a competitive uh, level. I think that's very useful. I also think if you've coached um, a sport um, uh, seriously, um, then I think that that's very useful. And again, the wonderful thing about coaching golf is it's you're dealing with so many different people across uh, 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 multiple sections, I suppose, of society. You know, for half an hour, I would coach the businessman, then I'd coach the lawyer, then the uh, house husband or housewife, and then I'd coach the six-year-old, and then I'd coach a group of 12-year-olds, um, and and so on and so forth. I think you get the, the gist that you, you get the opportunity to coach lots of different people from uh, and lots of different ages individuals and in groups as well and so those experiences are, have really shaped i suppose my capacity to to listen to observe um they've shaped my interest in learning and i suppose this is where i take a broad definition of psychology because i just think i reflect back on coaching and i think i'm i think back then i was trying to help people to learn and then probably at that time, I got caught up in that classical idea of I'm a golf coach, I'm teaching golf swing, rather than helping this person in front of me to learn golf, uh, and may, maybe um, help them to learn golf in the best way that they'll learn golf. And so um, I, I, and I also look back and I think when I coached groups, I look back and I think, oh, did I, did I engage them very well? Um, did I get them engaged? Did I captivate their attention? So uh, that's the engagement piece there. And then when I ref reflect back and I think from my coaching experience, uh, those players who are at the level of competition, which can be anybody in golf with a handicap, right? But when I think about the better golfers, did I give them the skills, the competitive skills, the mental skills in order to help them? compete well no i probably just taught swing so mm, i think i was a half decent coach i was a better coach than i was a golfer a golf player a golf competitor but when i reflect back yes i had these wonderful experiences that have shaped my my capacity to be a human form relationships um they offered the beginnings of starting to understand things like learning and coach athlete relationships and engagement and the nuance and complexity of performance and competitiveness. So I suppose that's how I would perhaps describe the relationship. And it's now that I'm now in the past few years, I've been able to piece everything together and it's helped me become a better consultant, certainly uh, a million miles away from being the most complete consultant, but a better consultant, nevertheless. I, I really admire and value the kind of multidimensional work you're doing and the way that you think about 
the different roles of a coach and the different sort of type of teaching a coach needs to do. I'm wondering what was it about sports psychology or what did you uncover where you first had this sort of aha moment and you realized like, man, I was missing some of this and here's how I would now go back and sort of redo some of the coaching or a concept or two I'd really wished I'd infused in here when I was a coach. It wasn't a, a single light bulb moment. It wasn't that single aha moment. I think it was a series of experiences since 2005, six, seven. 2005, I started my master's and I was starting to become, and I was honest and open about my um, qualification at that time, my experience. I had been a, a county coach as a golfer, a golf coach, and I asked the head coach whether I could start delivering on the psychological side rather than the technical side. And I said, look, I'm not qualified, but you don't have the resources to bring anybody else in. So do you mind if I get the experience, I will act ethically and and he was absolutely fine with that. And I still came under the banner of golf coach. And I, and I think it was really, obviously, that that was the start of my sports psychology career. So we, we're talking 17 years ago. And, and it, it was just really experiences, whether it was there. And then I started to work at a non-league soccer club because I wanted to really get into soccer. And I wanted to learn their language and speak the uh, and understand the specific challenges the players in soccer have because I think every sport has its own individual challenges there's generic challenges psychological challenges but there's own there's sport specific challenges and I started to learn things there and then I got the opportunity to work with some pretty big famous players there in soccer and then I got the lead site job for England golf and started to work with some Premier League clubs and then when I got England rugby going into the last World Cup and you know the experience of working with Eddie Jones who you know really does push you to seek no stone left unturned and I think that very much built uh, more of a broad interest in the skill acquisition side of things and I got to learn a little bit more about uh, more autonomy autonomy supportive coaching away from the traditional instructional coaching not that that wasn't there before but I think the volume of that got turned up and then through the education process of my podcast or just my experiences in in rugby and soccer speaking to basketball coaches etc I got to learn about games-based uh, activities or games-based approaches I should say and and the idea of uh, social constructivism as a driver of learners we all construct our own realities and we learn collaboratively not just from here is a, an expert a master a master coach we just learn from this one person we have to it's probably more optimal to learn collaboratively so there was all kinds of mini experiences that built up over time I think that I would say probably several years ago, I was able to sit down and go, okay, my, my image for, and, and this may change Alex, but I don't know if it will, because I, I, I have this picture of a biopsychosocial model of coaching, coaching practice. 
it's it, it's not i'm not saying it's the best model i'm not saying it's the only model but and this is how i when i work with coaches this is what i put down in front of them and i challenge them to start to look at coaching through this lens and this biopsychosocial bio being human biology which is influenced by and is influencing human psychology so biopsycho which is being both of which are being influenced by the social side of things and of course biosoco can also influence our social surroundings especially the people around us so biopsychosocial model of coaching if listeners who are tuning in can picture three p's at the top of that sort of powerpoint if you like I think as coaches, we're invested in three P's, participation, progression, performance, participation, participation is the engagement piece, engaging players now, this activity, this session, this week, this month, this season for a lifetime, perhaps, and then the part uh, the progression piece is the learning and the growing, how do we help players learn, how do we help them grow as people, and then the performance piece is the competitiveness, how do we help people players high perform consistently under pressure so if you've got those three p's i think under that you've got the tech tack and physical components sport is essentially technical tactical physical there's other words we can bring in like skill and so on and so forth and cognition but we can we could load those onto technical tactical uh, uh, and physical potentially and then driving those components which drive participation progression and performance is the biopsychosocial box now in that biopsychosocial box i'm answering this question because i'm saying all of my experiences have built up to me being able to articulate what biopsychosocial means to me the kind of the factors that are within that biopsychosocial box and again it's for others to articulate what that looks like for them but for me it's separated into the psychology of coaching which for me is the psychology of coaching practice what's happening out there on the grass or on the court or on the course the coach behaviors essentially and the coach session design the psychology of the uh, the psychology of the self so being you know looking after yourself essentially self-awareness self-control self-reflection um uh the self and then we've got the environment underneath that uh, psychology of coaching piece so the first box in our biopsychosocial box is the psychology of coaching and then we've got the psychology of of uh performance in that biopsychosocial box and in um the psychology of performance box i split that up into um motivation the motivation to compete preparation the preparation to compete and then mental skills having those mental skills frameworks in order to compete and then the third box is the psychology of the individual and in that again i'm dividing that into three sub factors and that is behavior um that is um character characteristics and emotion so behavior characteristics is in personal personality characteristics and um emotion and then the fourth box for me would be the psychology of the group and for me this is the three ships leadership relationship and teamship leadership relationship and teamship so whenever i'm sitting down with a coach 
this is how I'm starting in my own mind to help them sense make and also to sense give for them. So uh, a coach comes up to me and says, Dan, I want my players to be better competitive competitors. I can immediately go to, okay, the motivation of, comp of competing, the preparation to compete and the mental skills of competition. They might say, Dan, I want to understand more of the psychology of learning. I'm immediately going to go to coach practice. I'm immediately going to go to environment. Um, I'm also go down to leadership as well, because all of these interact. So I'm conscious that I'm waffling on, but basically that, that is how I kind of see it. And that's been built over time. Now that might change or might develop or whatever, or broaden out, but that's kind of what I've built. That's how my brain has wired after all of these experiences. I appreciate the depth of, of the answer because I think it illuminates a few things, right? One, how, how complex sport can be um, and how many factors might contribute to performance at an individual and a team level. But I think what I'm, I'm probably most gravitated toward is you have this really evidence-based theory that's guiding the work that you're doing, guiding coaches, guiding players. And some of it's your own combination and sense-making of the data that's out there. But it's all based on, on stuff that we know is really important for understanding human behavior. And I guess it sort of speaks to me because I don't know, I don't know how many other folks in a sports space are guided so strongly by theory. And I think one of the things you've done really well on your social media is taken some of this theory and distilled it into really digestible nuggets and so I'm commending you on that work because I think it takes a lot to get to this point. And now I'm wondering if you could kind of maybe expand on one or two of the common challenges you face when you bring this model to a coach. You know, what are the points of, of contention and how do you navigate that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I and I think I want to be clear because as you need this, um, you've succinctly and um you've succinctly articulated the challenge here is it is complex and it is broad and it is deep and i want coaches to feel that that's okay because it can look because it can feel like you're looking up a mountain um and i want to when I start a relationship with them, I want them to feel safe um, because I'm their guide. And it's okay that we're at the bottom of the mountain. And um, we can go on any path that they want to go up that mountain. We can go the steep way. We can go the gentle climb. We can take our time. We can stay at base camp for quite a long time. Uh, we, we, we can climb a few hundred feet and that that might be it and that's okay because it largely depends on context right it depends on who you are as a coach and where you're coaching and how often you're coaching because 99% 99.99% of the world's coaches are part-time or recreational or grassroots coaches 
and they still might have a passion because they're allowed to have a passion to be the very best that they can be, but they don't necessarily have the time and not necessarily the resources to reach the, the summit. And that's okay. That's okay. Let's explore how high we can climb. And I think that starts with me with my backpack on with all my gear metaphor for all of this knowledge, if you like. Um, and the, the client is there at the bottom of the mountain with me and um, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to start by planning that journey. We might talk about where they want to get to and what resources they've got in their backpack, how far that they think that they can get. And it doesn't matter how far as I've laid out, how far we're going to go. It, it, it doesn't matter. I'm going to help them. Um, and so to climb that biopsychosocial mountain, if we want to call it Mount Biopsychosocial, uh, BPS, Mount BPS, catching, um, we're, look, we're going to sit down with a map. We're going to create a map. We're going to create, we're going to put biopsychosocial at the top of that page. And we might start in different places. We might start by that person just brainstorming what they do now what they like, what they do now. We might start by brainstorming what it is that they want to get better. Um, I'll usually get them to go away, make some notes, come back to me and say, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what biopsychosocial, this is what the psychological side means to me. This is what I do now. This is what I want to get better at. And so that's where we start. And, 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 and I'm saying that because I think that's the number one challenge is helping people feel comfortable about this that we can go at their pace and we can go and we can start. I can meet them where they're at, at that bottom of the mountain. And boy, it might be that they're halfway up because they're quite prominent coaches and they're pretty good at what they do, right? Um, and it might be that actually they can teach me some things along the way. They've got some things in their backpack. In fact, I know that's, that, that's going to be the case. They've got some things in their backpack that I'm going to go, oh, that's a shiny a brand new object that I can use um, to, to help me climb up this mountain as well. So please excuse all the metaphors, but I, I, that, that, that's kind of, I think the number one thing is I have to help make this meaningful for the person, meet them where they're at, manageable, uh, and, and just say, look, it doesn't matter how far we go, let's just go as high as we can, we can go here. I think that, that that's the most important thing. Uh, but we do have to probably specify a couple of things, two, three things at max, uh, where we're going to really focus on. And you know what? Usually, usually, Alex, at the competitive level, I would say for a lot of coaches that does start on the grass or does start on the court. It does start. Um, you know, at, at the very highest level, at the elite level, at the elite adult level, those teams, those organizations exist to win. Let's just accept that. And therefore, usually that conversation is starting with, well, how can you help my team win? And usually that is, well, can you tell me about the mental frameworks your players have? Are you able to articulate any of them? Would you be confident that if your player stood in front of me, uh, uh, some of your players stood in front of me were able to articulate their mental skills frameworks? Do you think they'd be able to do that within 15 seconds, which demonstrates it's probably in their long-term memory, which means under pressure, they'll probably produce the psycho-behavioral um, uh, techniques that they need to use? 
if the answer is no, that's a good starting place. I'm not saying that's the only starting place, but if you're looking at context matters here, and if you're looking at the very highest level, in my opinion, in my experience, there's a great entrance point because it's so meaningful to those coaches. It's not to suggest I haven't entered elsewhere, but that is a great entrance point. Um, so laying down some objectives and usually at the very highest level, it's there. It's there. Um, I think at younger levels, it's perhaps um, unpacking the engagement piece. You know, how can I make this um, enjoyable for a player, um, captivate their attention, and add in some learning processes and practices as well? Am I helping? Can you watch here, Dan? And can you can you um, can you feed back to me? What are you what are you seeing? Like, can you feed back to me around what I'm doing with my coach feedback? Am I helping them learn? Do you think they're learning? What ways can I help them learn and engage them at the same time? Help them enjoy what they're doing. Find that sweet spot. So there's kind of all kinds of little um, areas we can start, but that would be that would be unpacking a few areas there. Well, I really like how you kind of just scaled it essentially you've scaled it to the different contexts and, and made it so that hmm. you're addressing a unique problem at each level and there's not one problem is not more or less important than any other but I, I think you know obviously I agree you're spot on at the highest level these organizations exist to win and I'm biased but I think at slightly lower levels in youth sport we probably should focus a little bit more on the participation and engagement than yes. than on the winning and, and so I think this is really interesting to start with at the elite level, let's say we start with kind of the 15 seconds. Can you give us the, me the mental framework? Could you give us an example of what might be, say, a good answer and a not so good answer to that question <laughs> from a player's perspective? Like what is a well-articulated mental framework look like and what is a non-rehearsed, non-practice mental framework look like? Yeah, sure. And, and, and I, I, let, me, let me deal with the, 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 the not great one. That's when the tumbleweed appears um, um, floating across the floor because nobody knows the answer. And I, and I say this fully recognizing there are some, some players at the very elite level who have so much skill in their hands or so much skill in their feet that they get away with this most of the time, probably not all of the time um so and I, and I would also add that different sports have different cultures um and different attitudes towards psychology and sports psychology and so uh, if you approached a golfer um playing on the pga tour there's probably a good chance that that golfer would articulate in my mind probably not well enough their mental skills framework not all of them but a lot of them um, if you approach a soccer player there's a damn good chance that they won't be able to answer it at all and so i think my first response there would be it it's it's when there's really no idea at all um i think the second poor response is well i don't really like to think about it and i just go play um, and we can unpack that more, but uh, again, I don't think that's good enough um, because I think that that's lead leaving a player exposed to their uh, the internal forces that can distract them and influence their behaviours, um, and certainly leading lead leave them exposed to external forces such as the game of the opposition, the game of 
their teammates and other factors that can lead that lead leave them exposed to a, a drop in performance. Um, so no idea, tumbleweed would be the worst. The second worst would be, well, I just like to go out and play. I don't really want to think about it. I don't like to think about it at all. I personally think that's suboptimal. I don't think that's good enough. And I don't care if you're Lionel Messi. Um, I don't care. I think if that's the case, you, Lionel Messi, can be better. So there you go. Everybody can shout at me um, for saying that now. Um, uh, on the other end, look, you know what? I, I just want something. I mean, I again, I, the, the challenge here is I'm going to answer you with Dan Abraham's colloquialisms. So when I work with players, I, I, I talk about HPM, high-performance mindsets. I want players to know what their HPM is, their high-performance mindset, because I want them to be able to go out and compete and give themselves their best chance of having their best game, as close to their best game as possible, and their best possible game. I want them to be in their HPM for 90 minutes or 80 minutes or four quarters or five sets or three sets or 18 holes to help them um, have, turn a five out of 10 performance into a six out of 10 performance, a, a six out of 10 into an eight out of 10 performance. I want them to be able to have their best possible game. And that revolves around an HPM. So what is within that HPM? For me, if I was using Dan Abraham's colloquialisms, I would say that HPM is you're paying attention to the task at hand rather than being distracted. You're competing at an optimal intensity rather than too high or too low intensity. And you are executing your actions with a positive intent rather than inhibited. Attention, intensity, intent. And so... Um, I have players that I work with that might not be able to articulate that, but they can certainly tell you the techniques that we're working on that they'll go out and execute. So I talk to players about having a game face, which is your optimal mental state. It's the attitude you want to have out there. It's the persona. Coaches talk about personality. It's the persona you want to have out there on the court or the course or the pitch that you want constantly, irrespective of the feelings, thoughts and and emotions that are impinging on your mindset, irrespective of the challenges that confront your perceptual system non-stop. I talk to players about having ant or, or squashing ants, automatic negative thoughts. I talk to players about having a match script, which is helping them become task-oriented. You'll recognize it as goal orientation theory, helping them become task-oriented, having them be in their right goal state. I talk to players about using controllers, using things like their self-talk and their body language, et cetera, et cetera. So I have very specific language that I've built based on, as you mentioned earlier, empirical evidence or theory. Um, it's not ignoring that, but he's delivered in a manner that is more digestible. Oh, game face, rather than individual zone of optimal functioning, or multi-state theory of emotion and action, it's like, whoa, man, I just want to score some goals and keep some clean sheets, right? What are you talking about? Okay, game face. Well, that's much more digestible. That Okay, I've got you there. I've got, rather than goal orientation, it match script or game script, if you want. So we're breaking it up into two to three specific controllable positive plays that also, uh, influences approach behavior and so does a game face so i'm trying to help from a theoretical standpoint players actually engage in their game with attention intensity and intent 
engage in a game on task um, with approach behavior, managing feelings, um, and I want them to do so without worrying about that and just speaking the language of things like game face and script and stuff like that. So as I said, very ha heavy Dan Abraham's colloquialism. Maybe that's a cunning marketing strategy, Alex, I don't know. But I also think it's digestible. And I, I, I would also never compromise on, on the underpinning theory, which is there. I like the Dan Abraham's colloquialism. <laughs> and I, I think... What's interesting to me about this is, you know, you, you've highlighted some skills and you've highlighted some, I guess what I would see as psychological processes, but there hasn't been anything that you've said to me so far where I'm like, gosh, you know what? A coach couldn't also help facilitate that. A coach could help support that. Mm. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe what coaches can do to put mm. their players in a position to engage more with attention intensity you know highly motivated um you know mastery motivated those kinds of you know the technical things you and i might think about but that can be more readily infused into coaching without needing to be a sports psychologist yeah and, and, and okay so i'll answer that by using attention intensity and intent without using game face squash ants controllers match script attention intensity intent and if you want we can use the classic four five c's concentration confidence control commitment maybe communication as well you could even throw cohesion in for a bit of fun if you want okay so it could be four, four five six c's or it could be my attention intensity intent i was with a team um the other day an elite team um uh, i won't mention the sport because it, it, it wouldn't be wouldn't be right it wouldn't be fair but this is what we did is is i'd spoke to the coaches i'd done some zoom sessions and i went over and i did a session done some sessions with their players we started to build a common language we've started to build an identity here so let's just take attention intensity intent so what i i said to the coaches look we want to use a games based approach here to be able to start helping uh, our players think about HPM and LPM and HPM with respect to attention, intensity, intent. Okay. We want to get players talking about this, collaborating on this. And so that game-based approach specifically, actually in this instance, a game sense model, which comes out of Australia, came out of Australia in the late 1990s. And that essentially has four principles. The first principle is a representative learning design, which is becoming all the rage now, which makes sense, which is basically engage players in activities that look like the game and present the demands of the game and also the emotional so the technical, tactical, physical demands of the game, but also the emotional, the psychological, if you like, demands of the game. So I was saying to coaches, okay, we've started to talk to players about, uh, about HPM. They know attention, intensity, intent, okay? I want you to create some representative learning design, uh, some, some activities that um, are authentic to a representative learning environment, that is going to stretch their attention, is going to influence their intensity, um, and is going to place demands on their capacity to execute their actions with positive intent. And you will, 
you can present this to the players. You can, you know, I want everybody to be all in here. There's going to be no secrets. You know, you, you introduce these activities and say, you know, we, we, we're doing this from the technical, tactical and physical perspective. We're working on our game model. We're working on our principles here, principles of play. But also we're going to tap into attention, intensity and intent here. Okay. And the second principle of a games-based uh, uh, approach is questioning. So coaches maybe stopping the game or not stopping the game and just coaching on the run, asking questions of players. Now, you can ask questions around the tech-tact physical piece, around the game model, but also you can ask questions of your players around attention, intensity, intent. So it's not just around the tech-tact piece. It's around attention, intensity, intent there. What did you focus on there? Where was your attention there? Did you feel like you dropped in intensity there? Don't have to stop play. We can carry on playing. Let's keep it at the right pace. Let's keep it at the right pace. But let's throw some prompts out there. There was three coaches, a head coach, and in fact, there were three assistants. It's an elite team, right? The resources are there. I wanted them all involved. So they all got involved. So they were out there on the field, all four of them. They were involved. And one of them was back with the defenders asking questions of them, prompting, hinting, maybe making suggestions, but around attention, intensity, intent, because you want players to experience that. You want players to have the capacity to build the kind of working memory that's focused on the game model, focused on the actions that they've got to execute, focused on the responsibilities within their role, and to do that with attention, intensity, and intent. And then part three of that is collaboration. So possibly putting in there's two ways here you can put in mini team talks so maybe you stop play get players together that might be in small groups it might be in a large group and this is where the coach stands back and maybe the leaders so we're going to bring in leadership here and we're bringing in teamship here maybe the leaders start to pose questions of the other players maybe the leaders start to feedback themselves it's not that you can't say anything as a coach here. You can jump in and prompt, but maybe you might step back and listen. Listen for the, to, to how well the leaders are leading. How is their communication? Because it's not just about the messages they're delivering. It's also the tone in which they're delivering that message. It's the detail that they're including. You can step back and, yes, attention, intensity, intent, but also the detail of the game model. Are we sticking to our principles here? What have those leaders seen? Then can the leaders bring in other players, maybe cold call and players who aren't, who aren't usually the talkers. So they're working on teamship as well there. Now, you don't have to do that in a small group. You can also ask players to do that in pairs as the game unfolds. You can demand players to be vocal in their feedback to others instructional again around the game model the principles but also attention intensity and intent so they're becoming a student of attention intensity intent with relation to the game model the principles the actions the responsibilities again it's all in we're stretching we're being very much what it's like on game day collaboration is really really important here collaboration with testing and solution finding let players test this out let them find solutions Give them the opportunity after the activity to feed back to you, the coaches, as to what their experiences were. 
What were they testing? Well, how did they experience that? What other solutions might they have that you can learn from as a coach? So that's the third bit of a games-based model. The fourth bit is really the psychological safety, the positive pedagogy side of things. Now, there's quite a bit to say here, but it's essentially turning down the volume of threat around mistake. And one really powerful way to do that is to throw in a, a sense of gamification for the psychological side, gamification around attention, intensity, and intent. So you can, you can gamify those things. You can gamify attention. If you feel that there's a player who is easily distracted, you could potentially, and you'd actually have to um, forewarn players on this, but you could attend, you could potentially add in a points scoring system around attention for certain players or intensity. If a player tends to get too frustrated or too angry with themselves, you can gamify something with them um, around um, great responses, great maintenance of optimal intensity levels. That kind of paints a picture of that. There's a lot to say about what you could do there, but that kind of paints a picture of that gamification within positive pedagogy within a games-based approach. So I'm passionate. My overarching message here is when I go into teams, I want a very concrete notion across the team. I want shared mental models around HPM and LPM. That to me is a non-negotiable. We can call it something else. Okay, we can call it Brian and Marjorie, if you want to call it Brian and Marjorie, right? But we've got to have something that players can go, that means good mindset, that's not so good mindset, and we're all in on this. Now, what every single player has within their own individual mental skills framework, I don't mind. But we've got to be all in on HPM and LPM or something similar. And then we're all in as players and coaches delivering this working on this, helping each other build this in training so that when we come to game day, hey, we're ready. We're ready to be an HPM. We're ready to help each other be an HPM. It's a shared mental model to build task cohesion, not just around the game model, but the game model plus our HPM mental skills frameworks. That's what I'd say to that. I love it because you are integrating so many things until really one short activity, if you were actually thinking about it playing yeah. out, right? But this, this idea that you can be working on your mindset in practice and the coaching can be based on real, you know, psychology of coaching principles and learning principles can be guiding that and they don't have to exist independently or in vacuums and, you know, pre-practice, post-practice or whatever, right? It can all happen at one time, real coaching, teaching, learning, and application of all of these skills can happen at one time. This is, this is a Dan Abraham's masterclass. And we've, we've got time for <laughs> one more question before we wrap up. But I think we'll have to have you back to uh, keep unpacking some of this. I, I'm going to ask you to do something that I think is fairly challenging, but it, it might be simple for you. If you were going to pick one concept for coaches to dive into right now that would enhance their performance as a coach, just one, what would you suggest that they look into a bit more and why? Self-skills. Self-awareness, self-control, self-reflection, self-development. 
self skills. I, I, I think that I think my next book is going to open with that. And I think it starts with you. Because player experience starts with you, because player participation, progression and performance starts with you, the coach. That's not to attribute blame on coaches for every, everything. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But their experience starts with you. And again, I, again, there's safety here. There's coaches who have families, jobs, who coach a few hours a week. They can only be as good as they can be within that limitation. But when they've got that couple of hours, their experience starts with your capacity to give them a participative, progressive performance experience, if you like. And that starts with your self-skills, the self-awareness piece. What am I doing? Why am I doing it this way? How can I do it better? Self-awareness lends itself towards self-control, as in towards behavior management, as in behavior development, both of which are important pieces in self-reflection, which I've kind of alluded to in amongst those two selves, self-awareness and self-control. And then the self-development piece. Once I've self-reflected, well, is there a self-development plan here? Again, even if it's just one thing, it could be one thing. So I would say, as uncool as it sounds, and it probably is the least cool of all the skills that I could say, it's just got to be the self-skills. It's got to be your self-skills because it starts with you. Because whether it's the adult elite level where coaches, managers, if you like, head coaches at that level get sacked because they're not aware, because their self-skills aren't good enough, because they're either not aware of something that they're doing that is negatively influencing the experience of their, experiences of their players. And so subsequently couldn't take control of that, change that, take charge of that, change that. Or if we bring it down a few notches, if it's just the under eights, under nines, under tens, it's still important because the experiences of eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, and ten-year-olds starts with your ability to behave like a coach of eight, nine, and ten years, ten-year-olds. So for me, it's got to be it's got to be self skills. What a wonderful place to wrap up. I could not agree more. And, and I think sometimes excellence is simple, but not easy. And so I really like how you've, you've summed that up. Dan, this has been absolutely tremendous. Where can people find you and learn more about your work um, if they're, they're curious about the wisdom you've shared today? <laughs> I don't know about wisdom, just uh, shared rambles. Uh, sharing rambles um, I've, I've learned from, uh, from uh, others. Um, I, uh, danabrahams.com is my website. Well, firstly, thank you very much to you, Alex, uh, and also to Cody for, for giving me the opportunity to speak on your excellent platform. Um, danabrahams.com would be uh, my website. Um, I do have my own uh, podcast, as we said, the Sports Psych Show, so check, check me out there. Um, 
and uh, on Twitter, I've got three Twitter handles, but the main one is Dan Abraham 77, um, and which gives away my age. <laughs> and um, I do do a post every day on LinkedIn that I also put on uh, Facebook, but check me out on LinkedIn. Um, I also put up, put that post up on Twitter as well, or at least a link into LinkedIn. So those are the places you can find me and you can find my books on Amazon. Um, yeah, and I, I, think, I think that's me. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.